0: Okay, I'm about to probably pin most of you men to the wall. Are you ready? Have you ever, have you ever looked for something, couldn't find it, looked, swear you can't find it? It ain't there. It is not there. And your wife comes in and does this. It's right there. (laughs) This happened to me two days ago. Two days ago, I said, do we have any black tea? Any tea bags? She's like, yeah, top shelf in a bowl. I'm like, all right. So I'm looking like I don't see it. It's not there. It is not there. And what did she say to me? Maybe if you would move something, you'd see it. And she walked over, moved this, pulled it up, handed it to me. But I got bailed out because it was in a Tupperware type bowl that had a press on top, and the top said cornmeal. Yeah. So hey, I'm clean. I said, hey, this says cornmeal. You got to excuse me. I didn't. Yeah, it's that meddling thing again. Seriously, you just absolutely, positively swear it's not there. And man, it's right there. Where are my socks in the sock drawer? No, there's none in here. Not the ones I'm looking for. There they are. You're just doing it wrong, guys. We're just doing it wrong. I don't think we're stupid. Well, I don't think we're stupid. we're smart enough to have somebody find it for us, right? <laughs> but seriously, you just do, we're, we're doing something wrong. And uh, you, know, uh, you know, people talk about male pattern baldness. I think there's a male pattern blindness. You know, we just literally don't see it. Because seriously, how could you look so hard? And it's, there have been times I'm like, I am not asking her where this is. I'm going to find it. She told me it was in the refrigerator on the top shelf behind the milk. I move the milk, I don't see it. And then she comes in and it's behind the milk. I think there's some sort of weird black magic going on here. It's like, Poof. aha, there it is. And I'm going, what? It's a common condition. And it, for whatever reason, it does seem to be peculiar to men. But what we're going to talk about today is somebody who just knew that they knew that they knew something was there, and it wasn't. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. It's the first time I get to say that. In our journey through Romans, we've been through chapters 1 through 9, which is really hard to believe. I'm looking for my notes. I'm like, where's my notes? I'm up here, lost without my notes. Mandy stole them. They're just right there, Mandy. You should have just pointed them out to me. (coughs) But we're going to be in Romans chapter 10. And I want to just briefly recap what we did in Romans chapter nine. Anybody, let me tell you what Romans chapter nine. I was kind of hesitant about, but Dad Gummet, that's good stuff. Romans nine was good, uh, exciting, encouraging. And Romans nine was about election. Romans nine was about God's sovereign choice. God being the only true free moral agent in the universe. God chooses. God elects. And that's good news. And what we're going to talk about in chapter 10, two, couple, kind of three things bunched in together in chapter 10. In chapter 9 we saw that not all Israel was saved. Why? Because of God's election. Because God said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll harden whom I harden. I'll create vessels for honorable use. I'll create vessels for dishonorable use. The and the clay has nothing to say. That was what Romans 9 was about. Now what Romans 10 is going to be about is going to be about Israel's role in their not achieving salvation. We looked at God's role. Now we're going to look at Israel's role. We're going to, chapter 10 is about Israel's failure. Chapter 10 is about Israel's unbelief. And chapter 10 is about man's responsibility in the realm of salvation and what it means and and how do we reconcile God's sovereign, electing, free will and man's responsibility. And I said a couple weeks ago, what we're going to see in chapter 10 specifically is that Paul, in chapter 10, does not put these two doctrines at odds with one another which is what we always tend to do. It's either election or free will. It's either election or man's choice. Paul has absolutely positively no problem in putting them up beside each other concurrently and saying we're going to see them both. So that's what chapter 10 is going to be about. We're going to start today and we are still in our... Let's see, this would be our fourth uh, point of our outline. Point one was seeing the need for being right with God. Point two was justification by faith, the means for being right with God. Point four was blessings, the results of being right with God. And point four here is vindication, sovereignty, and who is right with God. So that's where we're at in as we're in... This vindication point is Romans 9, 10, and 11. So we're starting the middle section of that after seeing Romans 9 over the last several weeks. <clears throat> so... If you would, stand with me. We're going to read Romans 10, 1 through 4 this morning. And we'll just dive into it verse by verse. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me pray. God, we this morning gather here. Some of us have been made righteous. And if we have not been made righteous, we are not righteous. And God, as we seek to establish our own righteousness, I pray that you would arrest us. I pray that you would stop us in our tracks and show us that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that we would know what that means. And by the power of your Spirit, we would understand, comprehend, and live out your word. We need your help, Holy Spirit, and we know that you give it. And we're thankful for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> so, we'll start in verse 1, which is the most logical place to start when you're looking at verses 1 through 4, right? Romans 10:1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be. Saved. Now, <clears throat> let's sort out who the brothers are and who they are and them and they. Paul begins this chapter in verse 1 by addressing his readers as brothers. Brothers. Now, was he talking to his Jewish brothers or to his Gentile brothers? What's the answer to that? The answer is yes. He spent chapter 9 talking about his kinsmen according to the flesh which would be the nation of Israel or ethnic Jews. Here at the beginning of chapter 10, his brothers are believers in Jesus. Christians who have been born again by the electing work of God, who have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ for their righteousness. And in addressing these brothers, these Christians, these believers that this letter is written to in Romans, what does he say his concern is? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, who is them and who is they? If you go back to Romans 9, he's continuing the thought pattern from Romans 9. He opened up Romans 9 by saying, "You know, My kinsmen according to the flesh, I yearn for them. And if it were possible, I would ask God to cut me off from Christ so that they could be saved. Again, we've talked about that several times What a huge statement. So that's how chapter 9 started. Chapter 10 starts in the same vein of thought. He wants to remind, after saying all these things about how not all Israel is Israel and how not everybody who was born according to the flesh from Abraham is an Israelite. Paul wants to remind us that his concern, his heart's desire, is that they, these ethnic Israelites, these physical Jews, might be saved. So he's not mad at them. He's not casting them off. He's not saying, oh, well, forget about it. We've been established in chapter 9 that not all Israel is going to be saved, so say la vie and throws his hands up like he doesn't care. He says, no. Still, knowing what we know from chapter 9, that God did not choose all of ethnic Israel to be saved, what's Paul's desire? That they would be saved. Now does that seem weird to you? The same thing that he said in chapter 9 was his concern is still his concern here in chapter 10. That his brothers according to the flesh, his kinsmen according to the flesh might be saved. Paul desires in his heart and he prays for ethnic Israel to be saved. Now if I told you God's purpose is that that door should stay open, should I pray that that door would be closed? The purpose of God is that that door should stay open. God, my heart's desire and my prayer for that door is that it would be closed. Because to me, that's what it sounds like Paul's saying. We know not all of Israel is going to be saved, but... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So is this Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? And this is where we struggle with reconciling God's election and man's responsibility. And he starts into this chapter showing that both are in play here. Notice the emotional way he speaks of what he wants. My heart's desire... And my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. What do you desire in your heart? Do you have a desire in your heart to see people saved? Maybe your blood family, 25 grandchildren. Is it your heart's desire that they would be saved? Is it your prayer to God that they would be saved? So if you have that desire, what should you do? You should pray to God. We'll get to more of that in a second. Excuse me. That word desire means, of course, desire, but it also means pleasure, satisfaction, a longing for something in the absence of it. Pleasure, satisfaction, the longing for something in the absence of it. Paul's pleasure, Paul's satisfaction would come in the arrival of the salvation of his brethren according to the flesh. Their salvation is absent now, but if it came about, it would please and satisfy Paul in his heart. But it's not just something that he wants. He also does something about it. He prays. He prays to God that God would do what Paul desires in his heart. It's one thing to want something. It's a whole other thing to actually bring it to God and ask Him to do it. Now, we want a lot of things that we don't pray about, and that's probably good. But do we pray about the things that we desire in our hearts? Do we ask God to do what we know God can do, even though we know God might not do it. I'm sure the family of Jack Buttram was praying for Jack Buttram that he wouldn't pass away. He passed away. How do we reconcile God's will and our desires? First thing that we do is we pray and ask God to give us the desires of our hearts. And again, when the desires of our hearts are for the salvation of men... You bet we should be praying. Because who saves people? Do you? No. We saw in chapter 9, it is God who saves people. Salvation, Revelation says, belongs to our God. And we carry the gospel, which is the power of God, unto salvation. The means that God uses to save men, but God saves men. So we should be praying to God that God would save people you got lost people in your family. I hope it's your desire that they would be saved. And I hope that in that desire that you are praying to God to do what only God can do. He also prays for it. So do you see a shift here from chapter 9? Chapter 9 was clear that salvation is God's work. Salvation is God's doing from eternity past. God electing some to salvation, hardening others... Making from the same lump of clay vessels for honorable use and dishonorable use. So, why would Paul pray for salvation for people who aren't saved? Because Paul doesn't know who God is going to save. And God just might save his brethren according to the flesh. And that's good news. These Jews, these ethnic Jews, just might believe. Charles Spurgeon said if all the elect had a white stripe up their back, he'd walk around London lifting up coattails looking for white stripes. But since they're not, he'll preach the gospel. And that's good news. That's, that's, that's our role. That's our, I don't know who God's going to save, but I know that He has commanded me to preach the gospel to every creature. I do my part. God does His part. That's how this works. God just might save these kinsmen according to the flesh. They might believe. And it's true that Paul had pointed out that not all ethnic Israel has been or will be saved, but that doesn't mean he knows who will be and won't be. So what does he do? He prays that they might be saved. And in his heart, he desires that they would be saved. So why not take that to the one who can save them? I can't find my socks! Honey, there they are. Great. I'm glad I asked you because I couldn't find them. And that's what Paul's saying here. He wants them to be saved. It is his desire, so he takes that desire to God in prayer, praying that his ethnic brothers would be saved by the miracle-working power of God. That's not all Paul does. Paul also preaches the gospel. He says he is under compulsion to preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, he said. So it's not enough. Okay, God, I'm going to pray that people get saved. And he doesn't say that here, but this whole letter is him preaching the gospel. So that's what he's done. If you, if you remember back in chapter 9, we said that everything that was said in chapter 9 flowed from Paul's desire to see people saved. And since he had a desire to see people saved, he preached the gospel. So that was clear back then. It's just as clear here. <coughs> Excuse me. So, is Paul praying that God would change his plan and save people that he wasn't going to save? Mm. He said not all Israel would be saved, but I pray that all Israel would be saved. Is he praying that God would change his plan and save people that he wasn't going to save? I don't think so. But he is calling for God to work in our seen world, S-E-E-N, in the world that we see. And he's calling on God to do what Paul's heart desires so that it takes from what's in here and puts it out where we can see it, where it's tangible. Which lays a good foundation for how we should approach what we do when we desire to see people saved. We should intercede and pray and ask God to change things in our world. Don't like the way things are in the world? What should you do? Pray about it. And that sounds like real basic Christianity, but I don't know about you, but I'm not doing so well there. I'd rather stand and curse the darkness than go to God and ask Him to change it through me as I preach the gospel to every creature. Now we'll see that more in application, but let's move on. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What a verse. Who's the them? Ethnic Israel, physical Jews. People that were born according to the bloodline, the physical bloodline of Abraham. And this is a really big verse in our progression in chapter 10. This sets a precedent for the rest of chapter 10. Paul wants the ethnic Jews to be saved. And here... He says he knows and he can testify to the fact that these Jews have a zeal for God. Now he doesn't say a God. He's not talking about Baal or Asherah or Allah. He's talking about Yahweh, the God of the Jewish people. He can say that he knows and can testify. He would put his hand in our vernacular on a Bible. Raise his right hand and say, I solemnly testify to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. These people have a zeal for God. Now be careful. The word zeal means excitement of mind, fervor of spirit, ardor in embracing, pursuing, defending anything, zeal in behalf of for a person or thing, the fierceness of indignation, punitive zeal, an envious and contentious rivalry, and a jealousy. These people are zealous for God. They're jealous for God. They have a righteous indignation against those who do not know and who do not treasure and who do not love God, who do not walk according to His statutes. If you were an ethnic Jew, your whole life was built around knowing and pursuing God and His truth. Let me give you an example from a quote from John MacArthur. He says, Men must know truth, but they find it so elusive. Pilate even said rather sarcastically, What is truth? As if he had long before abandoned any hope of finding it. But no folks on the face of the earth ever made a more extensive constant effort to find the truth seemingly than the Jews. He goes on to say, they occupied themselves in an effort to understand God's truth. They pursued knowledge about God as a way of life. If you were a child born into the Jewish religious culture, you would begin from your very early years to learn the Old Testament, to learn the tradition, to learn the commentaries on Scripture so that you might not only know but understand the truth. And he finishes the quote by saying, you would be educated from your youth all your life long in what they believe to be the truth. Zealous for God. Pursuing God through the scriptures that they had, which were written by the very hand of God at one point, handed down through the generations orally and on tablets and on scrolls. And one of the things that stood out to me in that quote from MacArthur is that they pursued knowledge about God as a way of life. If anyone on the face of the earth was pursuing and was passionate about the God of the Old Testament, it was the Jewish people. The Romans didn't care about Yahweh. The Babylonians who had conquered them earlier didn't care about Yahweh. The Assyrians mocked Yahweh. The only people on the face of the earth who were zealous for the traditions and the laws of the one true God were the Jewish people. Their very way of life was constructed around knowing and loving God in their minds. Paul's brethren, according to the flesh, lived to learn about God. That's what they did. That's who they were. But we've already seen, especially in Romans 3 and in Romans 9, that not all ethnic Israel has been saved. So what good was all this pursuing and all this learning and all this passion? What good was all this zeal? Because it didn't save them. And why? Look at the second half of the verse. But not according to knowledge. Now, what does that mean? It's a big deal we saw in the quote from John MacArthur that the Jews as a people pursued knowledge about God as a way of life but here Paul says that he can testify that they have a zeal for God but that that zeal is not according to knowledge so they were pursuing knowledge but their zeal is not according to knowledge now what's he saying he's saying that the Jews pursued God but that their pursuit did not have as its root listen to me a personal component. What I mean by that is found in the word for knowledge in this passage. There's two different words. Well, there's several different words for knowledge in the Greek language, but we're going to put two up against each other. And the first one is gnosis. The G is silent. It's not gnosis. Not a gnat that you smack on your arm, right? Dadgum gnats. They just gnaw on my nerves is what they do. <laughs> gnosis. And then there's epinosis. Now, you're like, I don't care about Greek words and about gnats, gnawing on your nerves. But the word that Paul uses in this verse for that their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge is epinosis. So what's the difference between gnosis and epinosis? Epinosis. The root word for epinosis is gnosis, and that word gnosis is an abstract knowledge. Epignosis is knowledge through personal experience. Now let me keep going to show you what I'm trying to say. Gnosis is reading the recipe. Epinosis is making the dish. Gnosis is reading the manual from the DMV for your learner's permit. Epinosis is driving the car. I could go on and on here, but I won't. I think you get the picture. In our passage today, the Jews had pursued knowledge and could quote the Jewish law and give you specific information from the Old Testament to show why they believe what they believe. But that knowledge had not led them to experience the person of God for themselves. Now, let me say something real quick here. I am not going to refer today to your personal relationship with Jesus Christ because that isolates us from everybody else. But you do have to have personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ if you're going to be saved. The old Tom T. Hall, me and Jesus got our own thing going, ain't going to work. So there's an emphasis in, in a lot of evangelical preaching about do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ you've got to be careful because that personal relationship can be just that just a personal relationship we have a corporate relationship with Christ through the body into the world and that's important Amen. we're not going to get into that this morning but I wanted to say that real quick as we're talking about experience as we're talking about the personalness of God I'm not telling you to just draw into your cocoon and just have the me and Jesus meeting all, all the rest of your life So that's not in the notes, but I felt like I had to say it. So the Jews had the recipe, but they'd never made the dish for themselves. Their zeal was not in accordance with knowing God and seeing Him work in their individual and corporate lives. They had a whole recipe box full of information about God, but they were starving for an actual life with and through Him. So why would Paul say that their zeal was not in accordance with that epignosis knowledge? Next verse. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. How could Paul say that the Jews didn't have a personal experience with God? How could he say their zeal wasn't in accordance with experiential knowledge? Here he makes a bold sweeping, crushing statement. For, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What a statement. That the Jews were and are, listen, ignorant of the righteousness of God. The Jews who had made seeking knowledge about God a way of life were ignorant And they did not know, nor did they understand, and they were wrong about the righteousness of God. They were ignorant about it. 39 books in their Old Testament, memorized a lot of it. First five books would have been committed to memory by most Jewish people, and they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Listen to me, church people. Listen to me, children who've grown up in church all your life, who take a lot of things for granted. I would ask you today, are you ignorant of the righteousness of God? Well, I've gone to church my whole life. Well, you've got a lot of good recipes in your box. You can tell me what a stop sign's supposed to do, but are you going to run through it when you're out on the road by yourself? Be very, very, very careful before you point a finger at the Jews. Because in Christian or even post Christian America, I wonder if we're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Amen. I would almost say we are. The Jews, the Jews. Not the Romans, not the Greeks. We would look at the Romans and say, ignorant of the righteousness of God. Yes, the Greeks, yes, right, ignorant. Barbarians, ignorant. But the Jews? The Jews who had made seeking knowledge about God a way of life were ignorant? Again, they sought out information about God. They cataloged their facts about Him. And they looked at the letter of the law as the means to make themselves righteous and to exalt themselves over the rest of the world. That's what the next part of the verse is referring to. And seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. Ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Referring to their efforts to make themselves righteous. They took the law and they tried in their human efforts to keep it And they thought that would make them right with God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And they must have gasped and put their hands over their mouths because those were the most righteous people they'd ever seen in their lives. I promise you, you're not as righteous as the Pharisees were. And Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. And what was He saying? Theirs is a self-made, self-proclaimed, keeping the law, doing right, biting my lip and trying harder type of righteousness. A prideful, arrogant, look at my righteousness. And Jesus said, that is not righteousness. And unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will by no means ever under any condition See the kingdom of heaven. They sought to establish their own, their own righteousness. They took the law and tried to keep it. They tried to establish their own righteousness through the law that God gave them. And they missed the fact that the law was given for what purpose? To point out the prevalence of sin in a man's heart, which should ultimately make them abandon their own efforts. They missed God's heart and purpose in the law which was to point out their need for a Savior whom He would send to them. And in doing so, they sought to establish their own righteousness which is ultimately arrogant and self-inflating. Look at the end of the verse. They did not submit to God's righteousness in their efforts they're striving to be righteous by keeping the law not only did they not attain to righteousness but they actually told god that his way was wrong god said it's on the top shelf behind the milk and they said it's not there i'm going to go buy my own it's not there And they missed it. God had said way back in the Old Testament to their father Abraham that the way to be right with him was through faith. Genesis 15:6. And Abraham is the he here. And Abraham believed the Lord, Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Does it say because Abraham did this or because Abraham sacrificed his son or because Abraham killed the fatted calf and prepared food for the angel of the Lord and because he told Sarah, hey, get everything ready. And since he did all that, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness? No. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So they had known since the law was given back on Sinai. Way up on the mountain, God wrote it with His own hands. And he believed the Lord. And he counted to him as righteousness. And they missed it. They missed it and said, it's not there. I'll establish mine. So what ethnic Israel ended up doing was not believing the Lord, not trusting Him and His way to be right with God, and tried to make their own path toward Him by keeping the law, Instead of being broken by it, thus not submitting to, not bowing down to God's plan to make them right with Himself. The proud don't bow. The proud don't submit. And we, in and of ourselves, are all proud like Israel was. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They tried to establish their own, and thus they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's a pretty big four at the beginning of verse 3. But there's a bigger four at the beginning of verse 4. 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Amen. Wowzers. <laughs> what a 14-word verse. There's 14 words in that verse. And it is like a left hook, right hook, left hook, right hook uppercut, you're done. And it's a good, good, good done. It's a powder keg. What a proposition is put forth here. Like I just said, it starts with Paul's favorite word, which is what? Not enough. starts with four. We just came out of the verse, out of verse three, which talked about Israel being ignorant of God's righteousness and not submitting to it and trying to establish their own. Now, why is all of that true? Four Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why? Because Christ. For Christ. If the Israelites had truly been seeking righteousness, they would have been looking for Christ. Jesus said that actually. He said, You search the Scriptures and they speak of Me. If you'd have really been looking for righteousness, you'd have seen Me in the Scriptures. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If the Israelites had been truly seeking righteousness, they would have been looking for Christ. They would have been looking for God's Messiah to come and establish everlasting righteousness for them. Instead, they were hoping that the Messiah would be a conquering national king who would set them free from foreign oppression. The Jews had been slaves since they had been overtaken by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. and then again by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. When Jesus came to the earth to provide a way to being right with God, they missed Him because they didn't understand that God's Messiah was coming to establish God's kingdom in the hearts of men and women. Now yes, an earthly kingdom is coming. And Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But His first advent... Does that sound familiar to you recently? His first advent, His first coming, was about making people right with God through the sacrifice of Himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. The Jews were looking for a mighty general to conquer the Romans who now ruled over them. But Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life to fulfill the law so that we would not have to. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes see, Jesus kept the law perfectly, being God in the flesh, living the only perfect life ever in God's eyes. Now this did not invalidate the law. Rather, it fulfilled it. Let me read you a passage out of Galatians 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. In other words, it's tutor, T-U-T-O-R. T-U-T-O-R. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the law was supposed to guard Israel until Christ came, but they missed Christ and put their faith... In their guardian, they put their faith in themselves and their ability to appease the guardian. They told the guardian where they wanted to go. And they put the guardian in their back pocket and took it their way. When the role of the law was to lead them to Christ. So that when He came, they'd say, there He is. Instead they said, crucify. Again, be careful before you point your fingers at the Jews. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The word in there can mean the last point in a progression or it can mean the aim or the purpose of something. And I think both those definitions work well here. Jesus is the end of the law. He didn't come to abolish it but to fulfill it, to keep it perfectly. Also, Jesus was the aim or the purpose of the law. Now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't need one anymore. We are in the full custody of the perfect Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us and our righteousness is found only in Him. He is our righteousness. And that righteousness is obtained how? by faith in Him, in who He is, and in what He has done. Now, if you've been with us through chapter 9, you might should be asking the question in your head, but haven't we established that ultimately this is all up to God who chooses, elects, and does as He pleases? And the answer to that question would be yes. And it would also be yes if you asked the question, well, does man have to respond in faith? Amen. Yes. Yes. Does God elect sovereignly? Yes. Does man have to respond in faith? Yes. Both are true. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who's been elected. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who in eternity past was foreordained. By the sovereign mercies of God to be saved? It's not what it says, is it? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Note the emphasis. It does not say Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who is elect or chosen or anything else on God's side here. Here the point is that man has to have and display belief in order for Christ to be the end of the law and for Christ to become someone's righteousness. And the rest of chapter 10 will show that in a few different ways. Let me, sh- let me just give you a sneak peek of what we're going to be looking at here in a couple weeks. This is Romans 10, 8-11. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. If you believe, if you confess, everyone who believes will not be put to shame. Now where's the emphasis here? On your role, on your responsibility, on your part to play in this. And what is your part to play in this? you got to believe. Two wings on an airplane, right? What happens if you just got one? Crash and burn. You're not going to get off the ground with one wing. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Amen. Without both wings, you're never going to fly. You will not see the kingdom of heaven unless God elects you and unless you believe. Plain and simple. You say, Well, explain that to me. Well, I can't, it's a mystery. And God is a God of mystery. But I know this, you are commanded to believe in Jesus for your salvation. I know that. And as I proclaim the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel week after week, day after day, the call is for you to repent and believe. Well, God might not have elected me. You're not going to stand in front of God one day and say, well, you didn't elect me. I promise you're not. You're going to bow your knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then he's going to say, depart from me, for I never what? Knew you. You didn't obey the commandment to believe and trust in Jesus. Without both wings, you're never going to fly. If If you want to be saved, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. And let me tell you what, when you get on the other side of that and you believe, you say, God, look what you did. Amen. <laughs> That's what it's all about. We fight about election. We fight about free will. And God says, yes, this is yeah. Do I have to understand it all completely? I'm not God, people. You're not God. And I'm not going to seek to establish my own righteousness. But I'm going to submit to the righteousness of God. So, what do we do with all this? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I I just... I, I don't have a good alliteration for the application points this week. I just don't have it, okay? I don't have it. P can't be, y'all. It's so so let, me just, let me just give you the application points from what we've looked at today. The first one is we have to make a concerted effort as Christians to figure out how election and man's responsibility work together. And if you throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you don't want one or the other, you don't get either. I'll read from John MacArthur again. I love this. So, and just so you know, the airplane thing was his, not mine. i am giving him full credit for that. John MacArthur again says, And I want you never to forget that you always have both of those things. If you have salvation, you have the sovereign election of God and you have the faith of an individual. If you have the loss of, the lack of salvation, the loss of hope in Christ, it is because you have sovereign choice. That's chapter 9. And because you have unbelief. You could think of it along the line of concurrence, he says, which is a word that you may have never heard used. It's sort of like an airplane taking off. Now, wings are mine. He's, he used a different airplane analogy. Two things are necessary for an airplane to take off. What are they? Anybody fly? Thrust and lift, absolutely. If you have lift without thrust, you don't get off the ground. If you have thrust without lift, you don't get off the ground. You have to have thrust and lift, and you have to have two wings. In an airplane, not in a helicopter. Somebody's going, you don't have to have wings in a helicopter. I know what you're thinking. I know how you people are. <laughs> anyway. MacArthur goes on to say, So don't let your theology of the sovereignty of God eliminate the possibility of people being saved. And we ought still to be praying with all of our heart for those who are outside Christ. Israel's salvation is possible. Individual Jews can come to know the Savior. Paul's prayer indicates that. We're not supposed to sit back and try to figure out God's decree. We're supposed to proceed with prayer and evangelism. Did you hear that? We are supposed to proceed with prayer and evangelism. And that's a secret thing. The elective decree of God is a secret thing that's not for us to know. For us to know is that we must reach all men and pray for those outside that they may be saved. We preach, we pray, we testify, we intercede, we speak the gospel, we supplicate on behalf of the lost. We don't know who the elect are so we preach to all. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory is what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10. Paul says I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may be saved. I reach out to all because I don't know who they are but I wouldn't endure anything to reach them. End of quote from John MacArthur. So... Don't try to have one and not the other, as far as God's elective purpose and man's obligation to believe. Now, another thing here, another application point. Listen, seek knowledge, but remember, knowledge puffs up. We're talking about knowledge just a little bit. Hosea 4, 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Now that's God's statement in Hosea 4.6. We've talked about Hosea a little bit recently, haven't we? But then go to 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, quote, puffs up, but love builds up. The gnosis and the epinosis that we talked about. If you're just looking to accumulate information about God, that kind of knowledge puffs up. And I have been that person. Walking around with my chest stuck out. Ask me a Bible trivia question. I would destroy you in Bible trivia. I dare you? Ask me who Queen Athaliah was. I'll tell you. She put her hands between the pillars and cried out, Treason! Treason! So. Man, I, was proud. I remember we did play Bible trivia one time when we was in Tennessee, and that was one of the questions. And they all looked at me and, who, who put their hand on the pillar and cried out trees and trees? And I'm like, Queen Athaliah. And they're like, what? Yeah. Look at the back of the card. It says Queen Athaliah. See there? I know my Bible. That's the knowledge that puffs up. I'm not saying you shouldn't know that. You should know that. You should be familiar enough with your Bible that you know who Queen Athaliah was. But not for the purpose of saying, I know who Queen Athaliah was. Because that kind of knowledge puffs up. And if that's the kind of knowledge that you're seeking, what you're doing is seeking to establish your own righteousness. And you're not submitting to the righteousness of God. And you're never going to have a personal experiential faith in the finished work of Christ because you are relying on your own knowledge to puff yourself up. And again, listen to me, people who have grown up in church... You can have all the right answers and miss Jesus off the map. You can have the right answer to how do you get saved, but have you been saved is the question. Anybody ever hear of evangelism explosion? Two probing questions. If you died tonight and you were standing before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to Him? That was the second one. The first one is, do you know for sure, if you, you die tonight, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? The second one is if God should say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? You can know the right answers to those and be lost. Because you can have gnosis and not have epinosis. Epinosis is when you see that God says, He will save me if I will place my faith in Christ. And I am humbled at the foot of the cross, and I say, Woe is me, for I'm a sinner. I'm undone. Not I know who Queen Athaliah is. Why should I let you into heaven? Because I know who Queen Athaliah is. I don't suggest trying that. Seek knowledge, but remember there is a knowledge that puffs up. And don't seek that knowledge. Last application point. The first one was what? We do have to reconcile in some way election and man's responsibility. The second was seek knowledge, but not the kind of knowledge that puffs up. Please listen to me, Christian. Know that God wants us to experience Him, not just know about Him. God has placed us in a body, as a corporate group of people, to know Him, not know about Him. What was Advent about? Advent was about a God who came near, a God who came to us. Emmanuel, God with us, not a distant deity out there somewhere, barking out commands, do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat that, wear this, don't wear that. That's not God's heart even in the Old Testament. And people want to reduce it to that now and they want to say, well, the Old Testament's irrelevant. No, it's not irrelevant because it's speaking to us about Christ. But he's not a distant deed up there, carving things on a rock, and said, here, y'all do the best you can with it. Advent and Christmas was about a God who came near to us and who took flesh upon himself. In Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You want to be arrogant and rely on your own righteousness? No, thank you. I'd rather go to the high priest who can sympathize with me, who knows my weakness, yet without sin, and come to him and say, God, I am a mess. And he says, I know you're a mess. I walked where you walked. I did what you did. I felt what you felt, and I overcame it. Put your faith in me, and you will have my righteousness, not your own. And God wants you to experience the blessed, joyful peace that comes with being made right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And He wants you to experience that righteousness right now, day to day, in 2017 and beyond, until we see Jesus face to face and dine at the table with Him in that day. God wants you to experience Him now with it just getting bigger and better and brighter as every day goes by. Will you fall? Will you fail? You bet you will. And He understands our weaknesses. And He intercedes for us. Because He is Emmanuel, God with us. Not some distant deity up there. So as we end this passage today... I want to reread the passage, and I want you to think about reconciling God's election, a man's responsibility. I want you to think about seeking knowledge of Him and in Him, not a knowledge that puffs up that is about Him. And I want you to realize that God wants you, Christian, to experience Him, not just know about Him. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And if you don't believe in Jesus this morning, the call is come. The command is believe and trust in the perfect work of Christ for your salvation. Let me pray. God you are faithful and we sang it this morning we called upon all of creation to praise you and we proclaim that God you are the strength of our hearts and that even when we struggle to believe you haven't let go of us and we said that we would look away to Christ and behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am and then we proclaimed hallelujah All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And then we made the proclamation at the end of those songs that Jesus, you are all to us. And through this message, I pray that we would see that when we seek to establish our own righteousness by trying to keep a law that nobody could keep, that that is our effort to inflate ourselves and do things our way. And your call is to come and be broken by the cross of Christ to be mended by the cross of Christ and to walk in the power of the cross of Christ but not just the cross but also the resurrection power that comes through a resurrected Christ who ever lives to make intercession for us God teach us what that means and may we love, treasure and cherish the righteousness that is ours because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus did We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? The gospel is good news. (laughs) Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks, guys.